open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm very proud of myself. I mowed the lawn this week. All by myself. I whacked the weeds and everything else. That's quite a feat for me. Earlier in the season, I couldn't mow the lawn because the doctor said, don't exert yourself after shoulder surgery. And so I uh, found somebody to mow the lawn for me then. And then here a few weeks ago, I had a little knee surgery. And they said, don't exert yourself after surgery. And so I found somebody to mow the lawn for me. And the only problem with that is nobody does it quite right. I'm afraid I'm entering the state of life where I look back wistfully at being able to do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. Just a dozen years ago, I tore the roof off my house and repaired and replaced it almost by myself, had just a little bit of help. I built a block wall with 25,000 pounds of, of retaining wall blocks and Maybe that's why mowing the lawn is about all I can do these days. (laughs) I keep hoping I'm going to get strong again like I was 15 years ago, but uh, I'm coming to the realization that strong is going to mean something different in my future than it meant in my past. Physical strength is pretty easy to see. It's pretty easy to understand But the question I want to ask today is, what does it mean to be spiritually strong? What does it mean to be spiritually strong? Is it David running at Goliath? Oh, I love that story. Is it Elijah facing the prophets of Baal? Is it Peter whacking off the ear of the servant of the high priest? Is it Jesus silently facing his accusers? As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you know, for those of you that are newer in our church, I've been working through this book. We take time out for different things, but we're coming back to 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 8, I think God is going to define for us what it means to be strong as a Christian. Uh, this, this passage is one that, that is going to be familiar to a lot of uh, folks who have known the Lord for any time and read the word. And as I came to approach it this week, I thought, what is the message that God has for us? I think a big part of the message in this passage is defining what it means to be strong as a Christian. Please follow as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it 
as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will, he, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, verse 1 gives us the topic of this passage, but the teaching has a much broader application Look at it there. Now concerning things offered to idols. If you were to drop back to verse 7, you would see it start this way. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. This pattern is used throughout the rest of, of 1 Corinthians, and it indicates that they had asked some questions of Paul. In chapter 7, he addresses issues that they asked about in regard to marriage. In this chapter, they asked about things sacrificed to idols, and it would appear that they wanted a yes or no answer. And I love the way Paul answered them because he took what is in our Bibles three chapters to answer their question. This question, the, the, the answer to this question is chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. And so we're going to take all of that time as well and just start into this today but there are principles that must be applied. In God's word, there are two kinds of truth. There are, there are truths that are absolute, black and white, right and wrong, things like lying. It's wrong to lie, it's right to tell the truth. And when we come to those right and wrong principles, we, we acknowledge those things. But here, we have something that is more nuanced and there are elements of right and wrong, there are elements of better and best, and in that context, we need to learn what it means to be a strong Christian as we live out God's truth. The question that the Corinthian believers asked had to do with things offered to idols. Now, I've put a series of phrases in your notes, and you can write the Bible verses in next to them so you can see this is touched on in this chapter. It's also touched on in chapter 10. In verse 1, it only says things offered to idols. And if all we read was verse 1, we'd say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with something offered to an idol. But then it gets a little broader when it says the eating of things offered to idols in verse 4. And then down in chapter, or in verse 10, uh, excuse me, in uh, verse 10, yes, verse 10, eating in an idol's temple. Well, that seems like a different issue as well. And then in chapter 10, verse 25, eating what is sold in the market without asking a question. And uh, what he's referring to here all throughout this is eating a food that was sacrificed to an idol. We don't have an equivalent of that 
for most Americans today, although I'll, I'll give you an example of something perhaps a little bit later on, all of these questions revolve around food. Food is the key central issue here. There is no question about whether or not it's acceptable to go to the idol's temple and worship. There's no, there's no like, well, you know, my friend goes to the idol church and I want to go with my friend. There's none of that. There's no question, should I go to the idol church or not? No, but it has to do with something connected to that idol worship and it is the issue of food. To understand the, the, the challenge in their day, we ought to refer to a verse like this where the Apostle Paul is going into Athens. Now, while Paul waited for his traveling companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Okay? Now, in our church, excuse me, in our city, there are a number of churches but nobody would say our city is given over to churches. Nobody would say our city is given over to religion. Okay? In this time and in these places, in the major cities like Athens, like Corinth, they were given over to idol worship. It was everywhere. And if you've been in some majority world countries, when they have a religion of, of fear, which is what an idol worship religion usually is, they put idols everywhere because the idols bring them good luck, good fortune, protection from the evil spirits, and so on. I had a friend who served in naval investigative services out in Okinawa, and they had I think they had a, a furnished uh, place that they lived in and rented, and, and there were these little statue things, and they placed them where they thought they belonged for the furniture's sake. And every time their housekeeper would come, those would be placed in a different spot because that was the spot where they would protect the house from evil. Okay, just given over to idol worship. Sometimes we refer to those things as superstitions. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of ways to refer to that. The city, the culture given over to idol worship. Now, how does that connect with food? Well, when a person wanted to make a sacrifice to a deity, he would bring an animal like we see in the Old Testament. And the animal would be killed, and some of that animal would be burned, and it could have even been a very small part, but burned to worship the idol. And then part of that meat would be given to the priest as payment for services, and part of that meat would be taken home by the person who offered the sacrifice and the priest, with his part of the meat, obviously if you have many people coming to offer sacrifices and no refrigeration or, or freezer, you can't keep the meat, so whatever you don't eat, you put out in the meat market and you sell it and you take the money as part of your income. Another way that this meat was used and, and the, the uh, 
what would we call it? Um, the, you see this phrase here, eating, um, excuse me, eating at a friend's house without asking. There's a reference there to the fact that the friend would go into the meat market and he would buy some meat. Now maybe he knew it was sacrificed to an idol, maybe he didn't. And he came and had dinner and he says, I want to have you over for a little barbecue. And you go to his house. And here's a reference to saying when you go to eat at somebody's house, don't ask them where they got the meat. You know, I hear nothing, I see nothing. Okay? But also the idea of eating, um, eating in the idol's temple. You think, why would we ever want to do such a thing? The idol's temple, to some extent, there would have been a certain equivalency to a restaurant. That they would have a place where they would cook food and sell it, have a place like a banquet hall, where if you were having some special gathering, a wedding, a funeral, uh, whatever, people would come there for this gathering, the food would be cooked and eaten. And so there, there are some, some cultural equivalents that we, we can't quite understand, but there's just this pervasiveness of worshiping idols. And look at this quote that's you know, in a, from an archaeological discovery from that time. Here's an invitation. Antonius, the son of Ptolemaeus, invites you to dine with him at the table of our Lord Serapis, quoted from Barclay's commentary on this book. In other words, they're having a dinner, you're invited to come, and he calls it the table of the idol. In other words, the meat was offered to that idol. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I, in fact, l let me just ask you, let me ask you right now, I'm curious about this. If, if I had a real nice prime rib all cooked up and seasoned, ready to go, and I said, come on, I've, I've got enough prime rib for everybody, but it's been sacrificed to an idol. How many are saying, I'm eating the prime rib? <laughs> You see, I, th I think God chose this issue on purpose because even for us today, who, none of, I don't think anybody here has ever worshipped an idol in their life, but we look at that and we go, why is this even a debatable point? And yet it is. And there's some things for us to learn from that. This, the, 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 the food sacrifice to an idol was just everywhere. And the Christians in Corinth Judging from the tone of their spirituality, they were looking for a blanket approval. They weren't looking for a nuanced approach based on principles of God's truth. But how does Paul answer them? And how does he, in my opinion, define spiritual strength? And it starts here. Spiritually strong people aspire to love. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, he said there's a certain, in the Christian community, we have a certain common knowledge about what an idol is and what God is. But look what he says next. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. 
A life based only on truth results in arrogance. He says knowledge puffs up. The word puffed up literally means to be full of air and it's a, it's a biblical equivalent to our word arrogance today. The Corinthian believers knew what was right and wrong about idols in general. Paul had spent nearly two years with them, so surely in the city of Corinth, if Paul was teaching for two years, he had talked about idols and about the true God. And he's referencing that. We all have some knowledge. But it, it would appear that some of those believers were saying, if God doesn't specifically say something is wrong, I can do it, period. And Paul said, listen, you need to understand something. If your life is based solely on facts, you're going to become an arrogant person. Facts are not all you should be thinking about. And I know some of you right now are going, no, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, aren't you always telling us to what, what does the Bible say? What's the truth? How do we live based on that? Yeah, absolutely. But God doesn't stop at the facts only. The facts always have a context. And that context has to be love. Actions that are based in love result in discipleship. Now be careful here. I'm not talking about warm affection, romantic infatuation. I'm talking about God's kind of love defined in 1 Corinthians 3.16 by this. This is how we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brethren. That kind of love. When I solely act in knowledge... It does something for me. When I act in love, it does something for you. Remember this principle? Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. And that's a verse given to the church. So we don't say, okay, God, God drew the line right here. I'm on this side. That's okay. It doesn't matter how it affects you. That's your business with God. The Apostle Paul says, no. That person's life with the Lord is my concern, just as my life with the Lord is my concern also. In a few verses, Paul is going to define what that love looks like. But here he's given kind of the introduction to say, listen, Corinthian believers, it's not just about the facts, but it's about the facts in the context of love. An awareness of limitation encourages love. What am I talking about there? Look at verse 2. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. See, Paul started out by saying, yes, we all have certain knowledge, Corinthians, but take a step back and ask yourself the question, do I really have a full and complete and perfect knowledge of this book? <laughs> if you know anybody who says, yes, I know it all, what do you know for certain? That they don't know it all. You know, humility, I wrote the book on humility and how I've attained to it, you know. 
That's his point here. He says, listen, Christian, take a step back and realize, yes, I, I know a lot of God's truth, but I don't know it all, I haven't lived it all, and so I need to tread carefully when I get into an, an area that, that, that uh, isn't black and white, it isn't as simple as it may seem on first glance. You see, you can't flip open the Bible and find the one verse answer on, is it okay to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to the idol? Because as soon as somebody gives you the one verse answer, the next person says, yes, but. And then when they answer that question, they go, yes, but, yes, but. And there's all of these principles that have to be applied. The more a person grows in Christ, the more they realize that some questions are complex and require the application of a number of biblical truths together in order to find a godly answer for that moment. Acceptance by God is based in a love relationship. Look at verse 3. If anyone loves God, this one is known by, I'd like to supply the word, God. If anyone loves God, this one is known by God. Uh, and, and now be careful again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you're going to earn your salvation based on doing good things for other people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Christians here. And the question is this, are we pleasing God in our Christian life or pleasing ourselves? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's, that's what it means to love God. It doesn't mean that I have warm affection for God. I have nice feelings for God. It means I have committed my whole life, soul, mind, and strength to God rather than being like the Corinthians who appear to have been very self-driven at this point in their Christianity. What can I do? What freedom can I have? I don't care how it affects that other person. And yet, what God is saying is, he's my child as well. If you don't care for him, you don't care for me. Are our behaviors the result of self-justification or the result of a desire to honor God with all of our life? You see, the goal of the Christian life isn't to do your own thing free from anyone's limitation, but to help others grow in Christ. That's where this point comes from. Spiritually strong people aspire to love. It's tempting to define spiritual strength for the Corinthians as those who can eat the meat sacrificed to idols without caring how it affects anybody else. I'm strong in myself. This doesn't hurt me to do this thing. And so that's the definition of strength. God says, you know, the really strong person is the one who cares about other people and who considers them as they walk through this Christian life. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now again, God is not saying you can earn your way to heaven by being nice to people. 
What he is saying is, once you have put your faith in Christ as Savior, when you have acknowledged who Christ is, that he died for your sins, that you're a sinner, and that your life can't be changed without faith in him, once you do that, God's character is put into you, and it's possible for you to love like God loves. And so you do love because you are God's child. Warren Wearsby put it this way, it's possible to grow in Bible knowledge and yet not grow in grace or in one's personal relationship with God. The test is love. The test is love. A spiritually strong person is not focused on his or her own freedom, but on using their spiritual maturity to help others grow in Christ. The question isn't, can I do this, can I do that, can I do the other? The question is, how can I live my life so I can help them grow? In, in speaking of this same topic in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, brethren, you've been called to liberty, only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, just an opportunity for you to do what you want, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Look at verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, therefore, verses 1 through 3 are kind of a summary, and really these next three chapters are kind of the the expanded uh, teaching. Therefore, concerning the things, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And so that brings us to this vital point today. Spiritually strong people know who God is. Spiritually strong people know who God is. And the first point that Paul makes is idols are not gods. They might be called gods. You know, you can go to... uh, to India and the, uh, the Hindu system and uh, other parts of Asia and the Buddhist system, and they have many, many, many gods. I mean, thousands and thousands of, of personages they call gods. I love the way that uh, one commentator put it. An idol is a non-entity, an it, not a him or a her, not a living personality. An idol is a non-entity. Look at how uh, Luke put it in, in, in uh, recording some of the words of the apostles here in Acts 19. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. This is, this is in Ephesus, and uh, one of the silversmiths who is saying, he's telling the crowd, hey, this guy says this isn't a god, because it was made with hands. And I think if Paul had had a chance right at that moment, he would have quoted this scripture from Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. 
Spiritually strong people know who God is, and idols are not God. Mature Christians know that an idol is the mere representation of a false God who exists only in the minds, the darkened minds of those who worship it. Now, there's an important sub-point here. Is there spiritual power behind some of the false gods that people worship? Can my missionary friends answer that for me? Are there, is there power behind the false gods? Absolutely, absolutely. What power is that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll obviously get to in a few weeks, he's talking about this same subject. What am I saying, that an idol is anything, or, or what is offered to idol is anything? And I, I put in parentheses there, no. He says, it's, I'm implying, no, they're nothing. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. In other words, is there spiritual power behind some false gods? Yes, and they are demons. That's what this passage is talking about. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the the, uh, the, the schemes, the, the ways that the devil works. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, not human, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Are there real powers behind false gods? Absolutely. But there's only one God one of the biggest mistakes that I think some Christians make is they, they seem to have picked up the secular idea that there is a dark God and a light God, or a good God and a bad God. We have, I'll call him Jehovah, so you know I'm talking about God of the Bible. We have Jehovah God, and then we have, call him whatever you will, Satan, you know, some native name for him or whatever. There is only one God, and that starts in Genesis chapter 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't fully understand or pretend to be able to explain to you why God created angels with the possibility that they would choose to sin and become demons, but he did. And so we understand there is one God who created the heavens and the earth, and there are some other created beings who have gone sideways. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. It's not an accident that Genesis chapter 1 says, then God said. You want to know how God created he just said, let it be. And it was. Whoosh. By faith we understand that the, that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen, these things right here, the things which are seen were made out of things which are invisible. Then God said, let us 
make man in our image. Right from the beginning of the Bible, God intimates that he exists in more than one person. Let us make man in our image. He's not speaking of the angels, he's speaking of himself, and as we'll see in a minute, his son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, and here we see Son, And then we see Jesus, the Son, speaking of the Spirit. I will pray the Father, and he will give another helper. This is an important word in the text. We can't see it in English. The best best, uh, translation would say, another one just like me. There's more than one word for another in Greek, and he uses the word that means another one like me. I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper like me, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And elsewhere it says, he now is around you, but he's going to be in you. There is only one God, and he exists eternally in three persons. There is only one God. There are not idol gods. There are not demon gods. There is only one God, and he exists eternally in three persons. This is one artistic illustration that's been used to show the three persons and their interrelationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all sharing the the nature of divineness or divinity, They are all God equally, and yet they have distinct roles. Only the Son took on a human body and died on the cross to pay for our sin. Only the Holy Spirit is said to be the one who empowers us now and and brings God's truth to us. The Father works. They all work together. In fact, if you study the Scripture, you'll find all three of them involved in creation, all of them involved in salvation, all of them involved in the consummation of time that is to come. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, and an idol is nothing. He's not an alternate God. The devil, or Satan as he's called in scripture, he's also called by some other names, descriptions, is a limited created being subject to the will of God. And the best place we can understand that limitation is here in Job chapter one. So Satan answered the Lord. Satan has access to talk to the Lord, if you will. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge 
a fence around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he went after Job with a vengeance. Okay. Now, I show you that to say this. Can Satan hurt you? Yes, if God allows. Can an idol God actually be a demon in God's clothing? Absolutely, if God allows. Can the demon, idol God, make curses happen? Like in voodoo? Absolutely, if God allows. Why would God allow? I think the best answer, example of an answer is from Paul. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. Let me expand that and paraphrase it for you a little bit. The apostle Paul said, God knows Real godliness is manifest in humility, not arrogance and superiority. And God knows because of what he has allowed me to see in terms of visions of, of God and visions of heaven, that he knows, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul was there saying, I promise God I will never be arrogant about that. Can you just hear that? I, you made the, you'd make that deal with God. I pro, I'll never be arrogant. Really, I won't. Just take this thing away from me. And God looked down in his gracious love and said, Paul, if you're really going to be humble, you need this thing. And it does not make me happy to allow Satan to bring it to you, but I know you need it. And so the messenger of Satan comes and causes Paul, apparently, we don't know exactly, some kind of real physical challenges. And it was with him till the day he died. Why would God allow that? Because God loved Paul. Now I'm coming right down to the end when I say this. What should be our bottom line attitude towards such demonic creatures, however they might manifest themselves? It should be this. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already exists in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. No doubt, we saw it explicitly in Job. Satan said, you let me at him. You take away his blessing and he'll curse you. And Satan ran right out to say, I am going to just smack him. And he's going to look up to heaven and say, you, you're not good. And Job said, naked I came from my, father's womb, my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. And here's the apostle Paul. And we don't see the interchange, but maybe up in heaven, you know, Satan's going, 
you've given him all these blessings and all these abilities to do miracles and to reveal the scripture, but now you just, you give him some of that and he'll curse you. And, and God said, see what you can do there. And Satan gave him whatever this problem was. And the apostle Paul said, I'll just glory in my weakness so that the strength may be of God. There are no alternative gods, only created spirit beings doing Satan's bidding as God allows. The strong Christian is the one who knows who God is first and foremost. I like to joke with, uh, with people down at Everyday Fitness where I go to work out when the doctor lets me. And I say, now, don't lift all those weights. Leave some of them for me. <laughs> the truth is, some of the older guys who work out there are stronger than me. You know, this guy's 80 years old, and he's pumping weights. I'm going, oh, man, man, I hope I'm that good when I'm 80 years old, you know? I have a lot of weakness. I know how to get stronger. Take some effort. But the physical realm isn't really what matters. It's the spiritual realm that matters. What does spiritual strength look like? Sometimes it looks like David running at Goliath. It looks like Elijah commanding that tremendous scene on Mount Carmel. But no matter what it looks like in action, it always starts with a knowledge of who God is. Do you want to be spiritually strong? Get your Bible open this week and say, God, teach me about you. Don't read your Bible to find out about you. Read your Bible to find out about him. And say, God, let me know you. And let me grow strong in you so that no matter what comes to me, no matter what the devil might throw my way, I will rest in you because you are the only God. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father, help us to know you more. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you. Help us not to be fearful by what the false gods might throw at us from around, all around us. Mm, thank you that we know the true God. We so look forward to growing in your strength as our days go by. I pray in Christ's name, amen.